welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a transformational practitioner and coach living in the UK. Hey folks, welcome back. This week, things are starting to open up a bit in the UK, so it feels exciting, but also a little bit anxiety-inducing uh, with everything going on. I hope you're all keeping well, and I will not mess around today and introduce my brilliant guest. Makes it sound like I mess around every week. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so here's my guest. I'll tell you about them. They are an anti-capitalist business consultant, radical life coach and social justice educator. In work and in life, they actively look at the intersections of power and privilege and will ask you to do the same, lovingly pushing you and your business in the right direction of more liberated moments. Their current offerings include anti-capitalist business consulting and undoing patriarchy, an online course for feminist men plus. And they'll talk more about both of those things during our chat. It's a real pleasure to have my guest on today. They are someone that I've been working with for the last six months and I just feel like they have so many interesting things to share and I'm sure that you're going to agree. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Bear Aver. Hi Bear, thanks so much for joining me. Hi Jem, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Not at all. So we've just had a few breaths before we started recording because I noticed that I was feeling a bit excited. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's really nice to have you here because we talked about doing this in December and then uh, for various reasons it didn't happen until February. So it's really great to to get to connect and record now. Yes, I'm so glad that we've that we finally made it happen. Yeah, me too. Um, and so for anyone who hasn't come across your work before, it would be great if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do. Yeah. Um, so my name is Bear Abair, um, and I am a, uh, I call myself a countercultural life coach, a radical business coach, and a social justice educator um, of a variety of types of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And those are the sort of like three facets of my, of my professional work. I identify as queer. I identify as gender queer. I use they them pronouns. Um, I'm white. Uh, I grew up uh, a mixture of working class and poor. Um, I've been more or less somewhere in the working class uh, for for my whole adult life. Um, I'm from the southern United States and um, yeah, there's lots more things I could say. <laughs> I identify <laughs> I identify strongly as an artist. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. That's so great. Yeah, hopefully we'll explore some more as we go along. Um, so how did you come to actually do what it is that you do now? Yeah, so, um, you know, for years I was, uh, after college, I was waiting tables as my sort of full-time career um, and uh, started to practice yoga as a way to try to take care of my body and mind from the stresses of the restaurant industry. Um and taught yoga for uh, about nine years. And at some point in there, started really digging into my own relationship to, to whiteness and to white supremacy. And over time, sort of uh, decided to, to leave the yoga world um, because of deepening concerns about cultural appropriation. But before that, I, you know, taught yoga five days a week and had a really robust community of students. And you know, at a certain point, I, you know, I was not really just teaching fitness classes. I was really teaching um, and holding a sort of uh, spiritual and community space uh, at the at the yoga studio. And so, some of my students, uh, 
started to ask me for more support than than what I was able to provide in the you know ten or fifteen minutes between classes there. Um, and so I sort of became a life coach by accident. Um, it was not a thing I, I set out to do, but it, it became coaching became the container for me to be able to support the students that I was already working with in these other ways. Um, and then again, sort of organically, uh, I, you know, some of my life coaching students were suddenly asking me about like Instagram strategy and like, how do they price their work and all these different things. And I was like, oh, this is actually a a separate offering, which is this, you know, business consulting, business coaching thing. Um, So all of it, you know, has felt a little bit, um, not accidental, but, but, you know, organic and, and sort of arising out of, you know, doing one thing and then seeing the need for the next thing and then going towards that, seeing the need for the next thing and going towards that. So. Yeah. And what was it like making a shift from teaching yoga sort of five days a week and having uh, regular classes to then working with people one-to-one and it's a very different whilst um, I guess you're using lots of similar skills, it's a very different career for you. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, I went from being really physically oriented and also all of my work was sort of local and in person. And then, uh, you know, as my coaching work started growing, um, much more of it started being with people who don't live in the same place as me. And, you know, many more of those calls were happening over Zoom well before our whole lives went on to Zoom during the pandemic. Um, yeah, so you know some some real practical transitions there uh, as well. But for me, a lot of the you know the deepest questions that I'm I'm trying to ask in my work have remained the same, whatever. Despite like whatever the shifts in in sort of modality uh, have been. What might those questions be? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent follow up question. Um, I feel like. Uh, I am always trying to look at how our personal development is intersecting with um, is sort of a cultural push towards liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the you know the worlds of of wellness and self help can be extremely sort of myopic and and self focused to you know to the exclusion of looking at the ways that systems of oppression um, are functioning you know on us and through us all the time and. Um, I've really had a, a strong sense that those things are not only not, not only are they not separate, but actually they're like really uh, you know intertwined, and that the work we do on ourselves to to grow and to change and to heal um, can't really happen uh, in a vacuum. Can't really happen outside the context of systems of oppression and and um, and similarly that the work we do to try to unlearn systems of oppression. Uh, also requires so much sort of self-growth and self-work um, that if we, you know, showing up to protests is useful and necessary and important, you know, making phone calls, like being involved in campaigns, all of those things are are really necessary. And yet, if we are not also doing the work to, to sort of transform how we are with ourselves and each other, then, um, you know, then, then nothing really, how, how do we ever get anywhere else? So, um, I feel like that was maybe more of a, a mission statement than like a statement of questions. But those are those are a lot of the things that I'm thinking about in terms of how I approach my work. Yeah. And it's almost like, um, 
I guess I'm thinking about sort of self-help traditionally. Like I know that there's a real shift away from um, that being the only emphasis. Obviously, it needs to be done in conjunction with other things and seen as part of a a wider context, as you said. Um, But it's almost like there's a shift away from it being opinions to it actually being a way of life. Like you can't just hold these opinions anymore. We need to actually do something with them because otherwise they're just kind of meaningless. Yeah, I think that's that's really right. And that's... um... Yeah, I think that's where there's some overlap between my work and your work, right? That you're like helping people to um, to really figure out how to how to be able to show up for the action, how to be yeah. you know well enough inside ourselves to to show up for for not just thinking about things differently, but actually like living our lives differently, living our days day to day differently. Yeah, and I I guess it brings me on to thinking about the work that you do around. Um, the social justice educator side of things. Um, So obviously you're doing in your one-to-one practice, you're doing this on a one-to-one level, but you're also taking it out to a wider, uh, a wider audience. So maybe I should just um, tell or say how I came across your work and then you can tell everyone about it. Um, So I've been working with Bear for a while and um, I came across their work. I think I'd, I think I'd Googled something like queer, coach but there was probably something a bit more than that um anyway I found your website and then I found this course that you offer called freely which is um three videos and you can watch them in your own time and I just found it so um (laughs) what's the word like my my mind just blew at the kind of not only trying to operate a business and you know have all of these principles and be working with people to support them to make change but also how your business can embody those changes and that was really mind-blowing to me and yeah it would be great to hear like how that came about and maybe some of the things that you talk about within that if if that feels okay yeah definitely um uh, I love I love hearing what people googled to to find me. <laughs> That's always a, a really fun and happy behind the scenes uh, glimpse for me. So thank you. Um, yeah, so I started teaching the freely class because I kept having the same conversation over and over again with my one on one clients, which is for me always a sign that there's like a wider audience for whatever it is that I'm, you know, that I'm continuing to talk about with people uh, in a one on one way. And the conversation that I was having with people was um, really about how those of us that care about social justice, that care about, um, you know, financial accessibility, that are looking at the ways that class and race and gender and sexuality, you know, all the things, disability, all the ways that these intersecting identities are impacting our ability to pay for the kinds of services that many of us who are self-employed offer, right? So it's like, if you charge, you know, what what becomes what is a living wage for yourself, it often means that you're excluding a whole bunch of people from being able to pay being able to hire you because you've sort of Mm -hmm. priced them out. Anyway, and so then then what do we do, right? Like if we're trying to both be able to pay our own bills, but also don't want to um, exclude people based on their ability to pay or not pay. How do we then go from there? And as I was, you know, teaching over and over again to my one-on-one clients, like here's how I do it. Um, I realized that I had a really uh, pretty accessible like formula and uh, and a framework to help people really see that you know that that those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. That it doesn't have to be that we are you know 
being so accessible that we can't pay our own bills or charging so much that then nobody else can, you know, nobody but the richest people can afford to, to hire us and that there are strategies and ways around that. Um, yeah. So then I, you know, I just sort of put it up on, on the, on the interwebs that I was going to talk about that <laughs> for 90 minutes and then people signed up for it. And then there was so much more to say. So then there were the two sort of follow-up videos where we, we delved more deeply into some of the practical strategies and the how to like how to actually implement these changes. Um, but yeah, I think it, it really is it, like inviting people to think about their businesses in a, um, as like business as anti-capitalist praxis, right? Where you're actually just uh, not just thinking like, oh, I, I wish that the world were different, but actually going, how can I make, uh, how can I make the world of my business different right now? I think that one of the, the you know, amazing things about being in business for ourselves um, is that uh, we really, you know, to a certain degree, to a much higher degree than we do if we're someone else's employee, we have so much agency in how we run our businesses and how we um, can actually practice the things that we we wish the larger world were doing right so like if mm -hmm. i wish that financial accessibility were a principle um of you know the 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 overculture um i actually can put that into practice in my business every day uh and i think that that's you know it's such a huge part of how we unlearn and how we move forward from these systems of oppression is by doing something different, even if it's on a microcosmic scale of just my one business, which is literally just me. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'm doing it differently between me and my clients. And that gives us a, um, it gives us a, you know, a framework and a dream and an imagining that that perhaps someday many more things could be this way. Yeah. And I think just bringing that into reality rather than having it as a theory, um, it isn't just you because that ripples out to your clients and then those clients are probably engaging in anti-capitalist ways with their clients or in, you know, whatever business it is that they're running. So it really does, um, it all adds up, doesn't it, to making a, a much more significant change than if we think, oh, it's just one person doing some stuff differently. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And now, you know, many hundreds of people have taken that class. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know that all of them have implemented the things that I've suggested in it, but I know that lots of them probably have. And so mm -hmm. that that feels really good to just be like, oh, yeah, like we we can do it differently. And it and it won't be, um, you know, it won't be one person with one, you know, as broad sweeping solution, but it will be each of us being able to sort of look at these principles and go, OK, and how can I apply this here? And what can I do to sort of move this agenda forward? Yeah. And it makes me think of when I was first training to be a coach, that kind of um, thinking about wanting to help people and wanting to support them and almost feeling like you you couldn't earn a living or it wouldn't be it wouldn't be okay to use that as a source of income. You kind of had to do it um, as a sideline or like out of, you know, just just to be a good supportive person. It wasn't like a viable way to make a living you have to do something else and I know that that will resonate with lots of people who are maybe like therapists or coaches or um doing activism there's all kinds of ways that people are making change in the world but it isn't sustainable because they're not able to earn a living from it um, and actually part of the freely class or the freely course made me realize that it's okay to make this a way that you earn your living because by doing that you're actually able to be um more effective and sustain 
yourself rather than um yeah rather than doing it on the side and having a million other jobs and it feeling really stressful yeah I think that's such a um that's such a useful uh, a useful framing to and it, I feel like the thing that's underneath that is really just feeling um feeling like we deserve a future that is a, mm. a thought that I have a lot that I um I learned from a uh, an internet friend of mine Hadassah Damian who's like a radical queer money coach um maybe we can link to her in the um in the show notes yeah um but she uh yeah she wrote a, a blog post about how marginalized people we get sort of uh taught and trained by the culture that we that there is no future for us right like we're we're in a system that does not expect for us to survive that isn't built for us to thrive and so so many of us like internalize that idea and we're just sort of like struggling to survive in the day-to-day living hand-to-mouth paycheck to pay paycheck to paycheck and that actually like we deserve a future, queer people deserve a future, black people deserve a future, like, you know, trans people deserve a future, all of us, you know, I, I that list could go on and on and on, right? I just like named three types of marginalization, but like all marginalized people deserve to have a future. And, um, and part of having a future inside capitalism means making money and, and it's, and that it's okay to make money from, from the things that you love, you know? Yeah. And it feeds into this idea, and I know you've been talking about it a lot recently, around what work patriarchy values. So patriarchy values, for example, if you sit in you know, an office in central London and are earning millions and millions of pounds for other companies, or um, you know, it values things that make money and create growth. Whereas actually, if you think about, there's something about devaluing or not valuing valuing our skills or our work enough to think that like this is this is only something I can do as a luxury or as an extra it's not actually a way to sustain myself because uh, patriarchy doesn't value that type of work and so it means that we also don't value it in the same way that we should yeah I think that's that's exactly right and you know just to complicate that a little bit I think that there is um (laughs) it's like I I both feel the friction of how cap, like part of what capitalism does is always look for new, um, new things to exploit, right? New things to extract from. And so there, I do feel the sort of like sense of loss that, you know, emotional support was once a sort of frontier that capitalism had not yet, uh, you know, ventured into. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel the sort of sadness of like, oh, God, we've like slapped a dollar sign on everything now. And yet, you know, the irony, or I, I, maybe it's not really irony, it's just sort of the, the, the truth of the matter is that, um, is that, you know, inside a system where we are putting a dollar sign on everything that like, uh, if our own internalized beliefs because of patriarchy, because of white supremacy, because of, you know, our all of these uh, systems makes us think that, you know, like you said, that that our our relational labor, our emotional labor is not um, is not valid enough to be, you know, charging a, a living wage for it. And and I think that there's yeah, I, I feel the sort of the friction there of like, I wish that we lived in a world where like, actually, I could just like, do the work that I do for free all day long, because I like it so much. And I wish that I could give it away. And yet, like inside capitalism, that can't that cannot be. Um, yeah. And it is okay to to get paid for the work that we do. And this, this is valid labor, despite, you know, centuries of um, you know, centuries of patriarchy 
uh, utilizing it for free. So, yeah, yeah, I'd never thought about it before in that in that way. That feels so so interesting and really powerful. Yeah, bloody capitalism. <laughs> um, so talking about patriarchy, that um, moves us on very nicely to talking about a really cool course that you offer called Undoing Patriarchy. It'd be great if we could hear a bit more about that. Oh yeah, I love this class so much. I um, I'm teaching. Um, we're about halfway through uh, a round of it right now, so I, it's really sort of like fresh in my mind. I just taught uh, one of the you know eight weeks of it last night. Um, so this is a class that I teach. Uh, the, the the it's called Undoing Patriarchy. The subtitle of it is emotional uh, emotional skills for feminist men. Um, and I use the term men really loosely here on the website. I use this language of like men plus. So by that, I mean men, male assigned people uh, who may not identify as men who are non-binary or genderqueer um, uh, or trans or, you know, sort of wherever they self-identify who feel like they've benefited from male privilege and want to, you know, spend some time in a group uh, unpa- of other male assigned people unpacking that. Um, and so... Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the like origin story of that class is that I, um, I had had a, uh, I had had a breakup and in that breakup, there was like a recurring pattern that was happening with the, the man that I was dating at the time, uh, where we, uh, sort of kept having the same argument where I would say, you know, I, whatever, whatever grievance I had, you know, I would like raise an issue and say, like, I really don't feel emotionally supported by you in XYZ kind of situation or whatever. And he would counter with, well, the problem isn't that I'm not doing that. The problem is that you don't see all the things that I am doing, and you only fixate on the negative things, which was, Mm -hmm. of course, a really frustrating conversation to have. And some months after that breakup, I was having a conversation with another male assigned friend of mine. And they basically told me the, that they were having fights with their female assigned partner. And they, they basically said nearly verbatim the same thing that my, uh, my ex had been saying to me. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> there is something like systemic about this, this, like, this thing, this emotional pattern that's happening for these men and male assigned people. And so I started doing research. I talked to um, more than 40 people. I did like 40 um hour-long interviews with folks um, just talking about how is patriarchy showing up in your relationships? Like, what does patriarchy actually look like in your day-to-day, in yourself, with your closest companions? Um, And then out of that research, built this curriculum. um, And so I've been teaching it since 2018. uh, And it's basically, you know, we talk about... um, uh, we talk about consent, we talk about apologizing and, and culpability, we talk about um, how to feel your feelings, we talk about needs, like how to have needs and, you know, uh, all of that. And then we also talk a lot about boundaries and expectations. Those are the sign- the, the sort of like um, course headings, uh, co- the, co- the content headings for the course. Um, yeah, and then it's just a group of, of you know, a dozen or more um folks who get together every every week for eight weeks um we meet on zoom and uh build community together and really do you know it's not uh it's not strictly an analysis building class like there are additional readings and suggested you know sort of external homework 
uh, in that way, but it's it's mostly really a class about practice, like how how is patriarchy intersecting with the way that like men and male assigned people are allowed to be, and then what kind of skills do they need to build in order to interrupt that kind of patriarchal conditioning? It sounds incredible. Is there? Well, I guess it's so it's probably impossible to condense like all of the things you've learned from leading it to um, into a podcast. But if there were a few sort of headline things that you've learned from actually running the course, what would you say they might be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the things that that I I sort of I think I knew in my heart, but I didn't know from evidence until I started teaching the class how much damage patriarchy does to men and male assigned people Mm. and how really harmful it is to grow up in a world that does not let you have full access to your emotions. And, you know, we could argue that uh, systems of oppression are trying to stifle all of our emotional experiences. And I think that's true. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a particular flavor of that that happens inside of patriarchal masculinity and sort of what's acceptable there where it's like the only kind like mostly men and male assigned people are supposed to feel no feelings at all maybe they're allowed to feel anger sometimes in certain contexts but to have to sort of like move through the world with the risk of you know uh social penalty for just being emotional, just feeling a feeling and talking about it, that there, that's a real, um, it's a really like dehumanizing position to live in. And so I, you know, I believe really firmly that systems of oppression are dehumanizing to all of us, even the people who sit at the top of the, you know, the system. I think the same thing is true around white mm-hmm. supremacy, that it's also dehumanizing to white people. Um, but to like really see and, and hear about specific, you know, specific stories that people in the class would share about how when they were emotional as a child, like, you know, the ways that their, you know, their brothers and their fathers, but also their sisters and their mothers, their teachers, their classmates, um, you know, would, uh, would react to them being emotional in public and that there, you know, there was, uh, there were real consequences for that, both, uh, you know, relationally, socially, and also sometimes physically, um, and that that's the cost of that is, is I think, uh, higher than I had higher and, and more sort of laden with grief and, and more, you know, personal than I had really, um, had really thought about before I started teaching this class and, and started hearing about it, you know, firsthand from, from the students. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see that in my son being, because I'm very conscious of, um, there being space to talk about emotions and that being something that is just normal but I can see in some of the the things he watches or like some of the things he says sometimes that that pressure is everywhere there's always that kind of um well as you say affects us all and even when people think you know um because quite often I guess in my experience, a lot of cis men feel that they don't need to engage in patriarchy because it's not something that is their problem or like it doesn't really affect them. Um, but actually really recognising the damage that it does. And yeah, I, I can imagine that that's just so interesting and and really sad. Yeah, it's very sad. And I, I think it really, um, it really took me by surprise in the, the first round of the class where, I, you know, I sort of frame up um, 
you know, I, I'm really asking them to question a lot of what we get taught is sort of like, quote unquote, natural, right? That like uh, women and, and, you know, female assigned people are just sort of naturally more nurturing or naturally more emotional. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm trying to push back on that and, and sort of say, you know, I think uh, women inside of patriarchy have the, the emotional attunement that they have because they have been required to, right? Because that's yeah. like a skill that patriarchy has required in order to survive. Um, and so if that is true, then it, then it follows that like men and male assigned people can learn those skills, right? That like that is a, um, that that is a a learnable, yeah. That that's that's a learnable skill. Um, mm. I think the the tricky thing is is that it's not just um, it's really not so cut and dried, right? It's not just like oh, we'll just like do this do this exercise from the workbook from the class, and then poof, you'll just like have the skill. It's like asking them to to build those skills really puts them face to face with a lot of. Um, a lot of pain and a lot of grief mm. about the ways that they um, that they were denied access to to you know whole swaths of their human experience. Yeah, I feel like it's such it's the kind of thing that we could almost talk about for a whole podcast on its own because it's just so it's so fascinating all the different elements of it. Um, but I guess I want to make sure that we cover the other stuff we talked about. So one of the questions around that is when you're doing such intense work and you're supporting people who potentially are being confronted by this kind of new paradigm and like a different way of understanding themselves and their emotions and how they can exist, I guess. And um, how do you look after yourself within that? Is it, what are the things that you do? And also um, have you experienced burnout through this work and how have you navigated that? Just popping in with your episodely reminder to take a few deep breaths, unclench your jaw and grab a drink of water if you haven't had one in a while. While you do that, I just wanted to let you know that I'm really excited to be running my Making Waves course again. It's an eight-week course, which takes place via um, Zoom with live calls. And then there's also a really cool workbook with lots of activities and exercises to support you. It supports you to gather the internal resources that you'll need to bring about change in the world. So whatever change looks like to you, whatever activism you might be working with or you might have an interest in, this is perfect as a way to kind of get clear on what your vision is and to start thinking about how your work um, aligns with your values and all kinds of other cool stuff. I should also say you don't need to be an activist to take part. If you are someone who would like to bring about change, but maybe you're not entirely sure what that looks like yet, then this is also a good place for you to start to think about that. If you'd like to find out more information and also sign up, you can head to gemkennedy.com slash making waves. You'll find lots of info about the course, some testimonials, and then also you'll be able to sign up online as well. And now I'll let you get back to listening to Bear. Yeah, I, I, um, I actually just sent a text last night after I finished teaching. Uh, a loved one had said, how was class? And I, I wrote back and, and said, you know, I, um, it was really great. I'm really enjoying this round of it. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing, they're doing such good work. And also I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, I, I, um, I break a sweat every time I teach this class. Like every time I sit down in front of my computer to teach, I, um, j- just the undoing patriarchy work, my body is like having a reaction to it. And it just in a way that feels different than when I teach about capitalism, it even feels really different than when I teach about white supremacy and unlearning whiteness that like, all of those things feel different in my body. And whenever I'm doing this work around patriarchy, it really feels like um, 
a different kind of energetic it's taxing in a different energetic way mm. um so uh so yes there there is a you know there is an energetic cost for me um i try to be really uh clear and and consistent about some really simple practices so one of the things that i do when i'm done teaching is just um put all my papers back in the folder that they belong in and put them in the drawer and then just like close them up and be like okay and i will look at you again next thursday whenever it's time to teach again Mm -hmm. um and that feels like just sort of like you know simple energetic hygiene. Similarly, I go and wash my hands after I'm done teaching, which has all kinds of other connotations now because of the pandemic. But that has been a, a practice that I've done for a long time where when I when I finish up um, something that feels kind of like emotionally or, or uh, energetically taxing that I, I wash my hands as a kind of like ritual gesture of, of letting go and moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then more in general, just like all the simplest things, making sure I'm, you know, hydrated, making sure I'm fed, um, going outside and looking at the sky, uh, dancing, moving my body, um, being connected with friends and also like trying hard to make sure that I get to be in spaces where someone else is responsible for holding the space for me. Um, so whether that's with my therapist or with my coach, um, or, uh, you know, any other kind of practitioner, but just being in a, a position of receiving feels like really, um, it feels like a really crucial part of my anti burnout practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I, I, you know, at the end of 2020, I was sort of teetering on the edge of burnout. And I, um, and I took two weeks off entirely of, of work and um, and took two weeks off of the internet entirely, more or less, which was really, really, really huge, um, mm. where I, di- I didn't look at social media at all. I just, like, didn't look at my phone hardly at all. In fact, like, the day of the um, attacks on the Capitol uh, in the United States, like, I... I know many people were sort of watching that unfold in real time. And I like hadn't picked up my phone for like eight hours. And then I picked up my phone and was like, Oh shit. (laughs) Oh my God. Like the, (laughs) this whole like world event happened and I like wasn't paying any attention to it in real time. Um, But that, that kind of like not being tuned into the news cycle, not being tuned into social media, feels like it really gave me a chance to kind of like downshift my nervous system. Um, that has now set me up to be like, okay, and now I feel like well and and resourced again to be able to show up for the work. Yeah, that's, it actually reminds me of something we talked about a while ago. Um, I can totally relate to feeling really burnt out at the end or almost like on the edge of a burnout at the end of 2020 um, and similarly had to take time away. But I remember in our sessions being like, I I just won't post on social media. I won't do it. (laughs) And um, finding it like knowing that I needed to do things for work, but also um, just having this absolute resistance to putting myself in spaces that um, massively increase my anxiety and I know that when we first talked about doing the podcast, I don't know if you remember, but um, we talked about queering social media. I don't remember that, but I but I love that. Yeah, yeah, um, and I I really I remember at the time thinking, oh yeah, I must ask them about that in the podcast. So would it be okay to talk about that quickly? Sure. Yeah. So this idea, and I guess whether you run a business or not, lots of people will be able to relate to this idea of like needing to be. Um, tuned into social media and needing to check it regularly, needing to post all those kinds of things. Um, 
And I think the way that you interact with social media has taught me a lot around like having healthy boundaries with it. So I wonder if you could just share like what your boundaries look like. How do you make social media work for you? Yes. Um, And yeah, I I think that the, there's so many thoughts that I have about that. (laughs) I think the first one which is maybe only really relevant for people who are like creating content on social media and using it for a business or a brand or, you know, an artistic project. Um, But it's to sort of like, I have used the approach where I I have divorced myself from giving any shits about the algorithm. I don't care about the algorithm. It is a, it is like a fire breathing dragon that cannot be appeased. And I'm not, (laughs) I'm like not even trying to like play that game anymore if what I was trying to do was to like build a huge following so that I could be an influencer, like we would be having, I would be using different tactics and different strategies. But as it stands, like what I'm trying to do in my business, what I have been trying to do in my business over the last, you know, four years or so on social media is like, slowly build an organic following. And to do that, you do not need a lot of support from the algorithm. Um, And so letting go of the kind of like, you know, business advice that says you have to post every single day, you need to do this or that kind of post because it's good for the algorithm because the algorithm likes it. Um, and just really letting go of that and and letting my first um, my first orientation to social media be that like, I'm going to engage social media on my own terms, I'm going to do this in a way that like, feels like I'm not beholden to the whims of this like, secret you know, force that the algorithm is that like has constantly changing rules and like they're not transparent about it. And I just feel like that is, it's such a mind fuck. And, and especially for people who, you know, have experienced uh, harm through systems of oppression, people who've, you know, people like me who have, you know, lived through experiences of abuse and trauma. Like it just felt like too much of, um, too much repetition of like really unhealthy patterns of like constantly trying to figure out what this like thing wants so that I can like survive inside this ecosystem of social media. And just, I just have opted out of, of playing the game in that way. Um, so sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, uh, I think the the other thing, the other like practical thing that I do is I just down, I download and delete the app regularly. Um, so if I'm going to post, I uh, I download the app when I'm re- when I'm ready to post. I download the app and then I post the thing, and then I'll usually keep it on my phone for about an hour afterwards, so that I can sort of respond immediately to you know whatever comments come up in that first hour. Um, and then I delete the app, and then I um, manage whatever other comments or DMs happen um, through the through like through the web, like I just go to Instagram.com, I like log in on uh, my laptop. And then I can manage everything else from there. But I never then get sucked into scrolling other people's pages or, you know, um, constantly checking to see like, how many likes do I have? What's you know, how's my post doing? Um, And, and then whenever I'm ready to post again, then I just redownload the app. So yeah, it's been really huge for me, I think moving having or I guess taking that space away from what is essentially an abusive relationship like it's really that that idea of like the goalposts constantly shifting and it being like a very instantaneous thing so you post something and I don't mean you but like one is kind of keeping an eye on it all the time to see what's changed who's liked it who's shared it it's really um it's not good and I've I noticed that 
a lot of my resistance around it was just like, why can't I suck it up and just do it? Like, why can't I put the energy into it? But it can be really grim if you're trying to, um, to please the algorithm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's it's really just like an, you know, an abusive dynamic where yeah, where you don't get to know the rules and you're constantly failing and the rules are mm. constantly changing and you're constantly trying to like d- change yourself or change your approach or change what you're doing in order to find success in a system that like is not meant for you to succeed. Um so yeah, I think just like giving ourselves the mental freedom from trying to to win at the game in that way uh is really is really that's like so sanity saving you know so Mm -hmm. so much better for my mental health to to do things that way yeah and so I guess that has definitely contributed for me and like navigating burnout actually having a healthy healthier relationship with social media um and yeah I, I guess thinking about identity so you mentioned at the beginning lots of um different identities that you or intersections that you sit at and I wondered how your identity has developed over time like has um have you always been openly queer for example or was there a time where you've noticed that things have have shifted and developed as time has passed yeah I um you know I grew up in uh, a small city in south Louisiana which is you know the deep south uh in the United States and um I didn't know any queer people until I was in college. Um, and so I think I, I had inklings that I was queer. I like came out to one friend when I was in high school and then told no one else ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I, you know, then I went to college at a, a big university that was, you know, only an hour away also in, in Louisiana. But um, I went to a university of, you know, 40,000 students. And so suddenly there were queer people and I was like, Oh, <laughs> I, I think I'm that. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I came out uh, in 2002. Uh, actually, I now I feel compelled to tell you this uh, this like brief version of my coming out story, which is that I um I went to a protest against there was like a um, what they were calling like a defensive marriage act, right? So basically, like an anti-gay marriage uh, act that was proposed as like a constitutional amendment on the state constitution. And so, of course, the the a uh, queer student organization that I was involved in on campus organized a protest at the state capitol. And I went to that with my girlfriend and we had like um, coordinated signs or whatever that we were, you know, holding outside of the um, outside of the state capitol. And our picture got taken um, and then it got put on the the front page of the metro section of the newspaper. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was I was already out to my like immediate family at that point, but um, but then that story got picked up by the Associated Press and was in every every newspaper in the state. Wow! <laughs> and so then I was like all the way out <laughs> with no you know no sort of warning. It was just like oh hey everybody yeah case case you didn't know I'm queer. <laughs> Wow. What was that like for you? That must have been such a shock. It was terrifying, but it was also sort of like, well, I I mean, that saved me a lot of um, awkward phone calls. (laughs) Yeah, just get it all out there in one go. (laughs) Exactly. With distant relatives, you know, so... um, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was good. And and I feel like from that point on, it was sort of like, well, I can't, you know, I can't hide it anymore. It was literally on, in the newspaper. So I guess I'm just, you know, I'm just all the way out. So um, yeah, so, you know, and now I'm, I'm 38. So that was, you know, 20 years ago now. Um, 
which has been really wild to, to be, you know, sort of in queer community over the last 20 years. So much has changed for us. And, um, you know, I think the other kind of big pivotal point I can, I can point to is, um, in 2011, I, uh, I came out as genderqueer and changed my name. I changed my pronouns and, um, you know, that, that has been my other sort of like major, uh, major identity turning point. So what was that like? Because in 2011, I'm guessing, I don't know about in the U S but, um, non-binary identities or genderqueer identities and using they them pronouns was even less known about than it is now yeah it was um you know in the sort of immediate circles of my queer community people were really supportive i lived in a house with um with three other people at the time and they were all super supportive um now another person who lived in that house has also like gone through a gender transition and um so I had a lot of kind of my like closest chosen family were really, really supportive and, and really helped, um, helped me through that process. Uh, but definitely a big learning curve for a lot of people in the, the sort of larger community. And, um, you know, for a long time, I sort of stayed, you know, was like, my pronouns are they, them, she and her is also fine because it like, didn't always feel like worth the effort to insist um, or to do the work of educating people of, of like, no, I am actually genderqueer. Like, I don't identify as a woman. I know that doesn't make any sense to you. <laughs> but like some some days I just like, you know, didn't have the energy. Um, yeah. And it, it's really only been in the last maybe two or three years that I've just been sort of insistent upon, no, my pronouns are they, them. Like, that's what they are. And, and um, you know, I have less of, uh, I think the world is changing and, and sort of, you know, genderqueer and non-binary identities are, are much more um, sort of widely understood than they ha- they have been in the past, although there is certainly a long way to go. Um, but I feel like there's there's more sort of like general support around it. So it doesn't feel like as big of a um, as big of a, a fight in the day to day for me. Um, and I, I think, you know, one of the things that was really powerful for me around uh, around my gender process was that I think before I changed my name and pronouns and in the sort of like, you know, maybe like year or two immediately after I felt a lot of pressure to sort of like perform androgyny or perform a more kind of like masculine of center gender presentation, mm-hmm. um, in order to sort of like, uh, like validate my own identity. Like if I was going to say that I was gender queer, that I needed to like look a certain way so that people would believe me. Um, and I think one of the really beautiful things about, uh, about this process for me has been that the deeper in I get, the more I'm just sort of like, I actually can dress however I want. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that my, I know from my own, you know, tracking my own life over the course of the last, you know, 25 years or so that my gender does tend to swing really wide, like widely from a more masculine presentation to a more feminine presentation. And sometimes those swings take years where I'll Mm. have like three or four years where I'm like presenting, you know, in a more masculine way, have short hair, you know, wear, you know, only certain types of clothes or whatever. And then like a period of time where I'm like, Ooh, but lipstick feels really good. Like, Oh, but I'm really into, you know, really big earrings right now or whatever it is. And, um, I just feel really at home in my own, in my own gender and in my, you know, in my relationship to, to that these days. And, uh, I feel 
I don't know, maybe it's just getting older. Maybe it's just like having held this identity for as long as I have now, but I feel uh, like I have less and less to prove around it. And that feels really good. Yeah. Oh, this, like listening to you, I have goosebumps because for numerous reasons, um, one of them is hearing you talk about those swings from like um, being maybe super femme to super mask and sort of in between over years. There have been periods of my life where I have only worn skirts and been like super femme. And then other years, um, you know, blocks of years where I have not wanted to wear a dress or a skirt and have insisted on trousers only, but I never recognized them until you said that as being gender related. Mm. Um, that's so interesting to me. And this idea also of like, how your presentation is like you need to justify your gender queerness or your non-binaryness because um I think for me it's that it's that constant gatekeeping right like when I uh, first came out as queer oh I wasn't queer enough like I hadn't I don't know dated enough queer people or I hadn't had enough queer relationships whatever it might be um then it moved to like oh I'm non-binary and I'm not non-binary enough like how do I uh, I don't know, present in a more mask way just to show people that that's what I am. Um, but yeah, that, I, I don't know, just that actual being able to explore and present in ways that feel good to you. I can totally see how now age 38, having like 20 years to explore that, you're feeling a lot more at home and kind of, um, yeah, understanding of what that process looks like for you. <laughs> Finally. Yay. <laughs> And I hope when I'm 38, I'll be there too. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it's it's been a long uh, it's been a long process, and yeah, I think you know the other thing that I think about a lot in terms of um, these these questions around uh, like having to prove our our own identity is that some of the like I I 100 believe that all of us are entitled to self determine our own identity. And I think part of where the pressure to, or for me anyway, some of where the internal friction to prove my identity uh, comes from is because there is a difference between like how I identify and how I am perceived in the world, how I mm. and and how that intersects with power and privilege. Um, it feels like we're like not co- I, I, maybe somebody's having this conversation, but I feel like the the kind of like whatever mainstream queer culture is is like not really having a conversation about I, or I haven't heard that conversation in that way where it's like how do we look at the fact that like I'm allowed to claim a non-binary identity I'm allowed to you know sort of put myself under the trans umbrella as a gender queer person and not need to prove that to anyone. And like, I 100% get to self-determine how I identify. And also my lived experience of moving through the world, like I, uh, in many spaces pass as, you know, a a cis woman, even though that's not how I identify. It's not how I've identified for, you know, more than a decade now. But like many of my life experiences are, are informed by that privilege, by that, you know, sort of quote unquote passing privilege. Um, and that that adds, uh, it doesn't undermine my identity, but it adds a layer of complexity to my lived experience. And I, I think that that some of the, for me anyway, some of the friction around like wanting to, feeling like I have to prove something uh, is because of this kind of like unaddressed power element that, uh, you know, that if I'm not looking at that, that that then it gets a little more, um, it gets a little more tricky to, to sort of unabashedly claim something. Yeah. Yeah, I really hear that. And also... Um recognizing that it is a huge privilege just to be able to be out in the first place like there are so many people who for 
coming out as queer um, or as genderqueer or trans or anything else, it's, yeah, it, it's not something that they'll ever, ever be able to do in their lifetimes. Um, and yeah, there's something about like, how do you hold that and navigate that whilst also, I guess, being able to be out in your identity um, and remember that that is a huge privilege and there's power there too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's, mm. yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I guess thinking about your queerness and um, sort of you mentioned a few a few kind of ways or places that you've accessed queer community in the past, but I wondered if you'd just speak on what queer community looks like for you now. Yeah, I um, it's funny because uh, in the sort of pre uh, pre question, when you like told me what we might talk about today, you said, you know, of course, like I know, I know there must not, you know, I know that's everything's different because of the pandemic, and um, it's funny because my queer my queer community has like multiplied during the pandemic. Right. <laughs> I um, you know, at the very beginning of of lockdown here uh, in New Orleans, where I live, um. A, f- a queer friend of mine and I uh, started an online dance party um, that isn't an explicitly queer space, but it's like run by queer people. And um, that dance party like really took off. And now there is a crew of like, um, you know, there's probably 30 people at every dance party. We meet twice, oh. twice a week, every week oh, wow. <laughs> for the whole, for the whole pandemic, we've been dancing together and, um, and, you know, then, you know, pretty early on, there started being like an after party where we would just hang out on Zoom because we just all danced together. Um, and not everybody in the space is queer, but the vast majority of people who are there are. And, um, you know, now we're like, many of us have had never met when we started dancing together, have still never met because of the pandemic. And, um, but we're like, we're on an email thread. We like have a WhatsApp group. Like we're like in daily communication with each other um, just because of this dance party. And so, yeah, that is my connection to queer community is like deep and robust and vibrant and alive right now. Um, That's so great. How (laughs) cool. Yeah. And and the dance party is like still open for anybody who who wants to, you know, if anybody out there is like lonely and wishing for some queer community, um, we we dance together Wednesdays and Saturdays at seven o'clock central time. And um, it's a super sweet, super, you know, affirming and welcoming space. So great. That's so great. So maybe we'll... um is there a way that I can like share a link or something if anyone is interested? Yeah, we can, I can send you that. We can put it in the note, in the show notes. Great. Oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah. And then I think it brings me to, um, what you're enjoying at the moment. (laughs) If there's anything like other than the dance party, uh, a specific idea or a person, a book, anything. Yeah. I'm in, I'm enjoying so many things right now. Um, which feels really, uh, <laughs> feels really wild to say because there's just been so much um, anxiety and grief and, you know, depression and just, you know, real heaviness over the course of the last year, four years, lifetime. Um, uh, one thing that I've really been enjoying uh, is getting dressed, <laughs> um, which I feel like is the thing that I sort of let slide for some months during, uh-huh. during the pandemic. And, um, just in the last month or so I've been, uh, I've been like wearing really bright colors and like wearing sort of, um, obnoxiously power clash kind of outfits that are <laughs> like, you know, three different patterns all at once. And, um, 
uh, my hair has grown out during the pandemic. And so I've been like learning how to have long hair, which is mm-hmm. a funny, uh, a funny thing that I haven't ever had really as an adult. And okay. Um, yeah, it's it's so I, I've been really enjoying just like getting to play with with my gender and my appearance and um, and to like have less to. I feel like um, part of why that feels good is because I don't really, you know, because of the pandemic, I don't really like go out into quote unquote public very often. Um, And so the audience that is seeing me is largely uh, a relatively curated audience. It's like the people who choose to follow me on Instagram and then like my friends who come to the dance party. Uh, And I feel like just such a, a sense of relief of like not having the sort of heavy weight of the male gaze um on me out in the Mm -hmm. world on a daily basis and and to really just be i feel really seen by people and under like people see me and understand me as i understand myself and that that has been really enjoyable for me lately yeah and that sounds like so much more than just the act of getting dressed yeah yeah definitely yeah oh wow thank you for sharing yeah Um, So I'm conscious of time and I feel like we could have just talked about so much more. So thank you so much for joining me. And um, yeah, it's been really great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a really, really fun conversation. Uh, Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Thank you, Bear. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. As always, please go and check out my guest's work. You can find more information about Bear at bearcoaches.com forward slash biz, B-I-Z. Or you can head to undoingpatriarchy.com to find out more about the course that Bear runs. You can also follow them on Instagram by heading to bearabear underscore. And they share some really insightful stuff. So I'd really recommend that you check out more of their work. Plus the Freely series, which is really great. You'll find that on their website as well that's all from me for this week I won't be back next week with another episode because there'll be an integration week Um, but if you are interested in checking out the making waves course definitely head to gemkennedy.com slash making waves we'll be able to find out lots more information and also sign up for your space so take care everyone I'll see you in a couple of weeks bye bye